when you have made sure that people don't have access, that they made a meal out of scrap, out of necessity, and they have perfected the art of making full meals out of scrap because you were trying to starve them to death. They were not going to die. So that's where that ingenuity and that creativity is. That's where it comes from. You're listening to Black Women Lead, a podcast elevating the stories, struggles, and accomplishments of Black women leading change in their communities. Peace, everyone. My name is Piper Carter. I am your host. This is a new series that we're starting. It's called Black Women Lead. It's just my honor and pleasure to be able to be your host. I am a Black woman, if you haven't noticed, from Detroit. We're starting with one of my really great comrades and friends, Sadie Saar. She studied here in Detroit at Wayne State University, social justice and also, I'm sorry, social work, and also at Marygrove, uh, getting her master's degree in social justice. She fights for African and Black immigrants. She fights for youth. She's an amazing Muslim woman. And I'm just really honored and excited that um, this is our first interview. We get, to, we get to learn a bit more about this really amazing, incredible human being. Without further ado, Sadie Saar, how are you? Welcome. How are you? Cool. Thank you. I want to start, like, you know, uh, just to briefly, because we're going to go back, but I just want you to give an overview of um, ABISA, your organization, um, your new bail fund, your appointment with the governor, and, uh, and, and your advocacy work that you do. No, definitely. So ABISA is um, the African Bureau for Immigration and Social Affairs. And uh, with ABISA, we try to center the narratives of Black and African immigrants, right? So bringing to the core of the conversation around immigration and integration, those voices that often are left to the fringes, but also not only they are at the fringes of the conversation, but those communities are the ones that pay the highest price in deportation, in incarceration. So it's almost like, what does it look like to be black um, when you have an accent, right? And so trying to mitigate and navigate those spaces, that's what Abisa does. So whether it is advocating for better integration systems in the cities where we live, in the state that we are, or teaching, immigrants what civic engagement look like why should they be involved why should they know who their city council person is why should they go there and have their voices be heard like simple you would say not as simple as it sounds because we came in when i say we we african immigrant black immigrant came into this country totally unaware of the systemic issues, the racial issues and racism and discrimination and all of that. And not being aware of it have caused us more harm, definitely, than we expected, especially when some of us come to this country with the idea that they can come here and just achieve uh, this well-sold um, American dream. And they find out that, you know, you can still be in the very 
the first nation and still live in what they would call third world conditions, right? When you sit in countries and in states where people don't have access to running water or their water is being poisoned and that, you know, we live in food deserts and so on and so forth. And you don't, those are things that you don't assimilate in your brain with America, for example, especially when you are on the continent. So it's a lot of, um, a lot of work. And uh, that work with Abisa have led to the creation of the Bail Fund that is addressing uniquely um, the incarceration of Black migrants who are seeking uh, safety and security in the U.S. and the discrimination in the bonds. So they have highest bonds. So for Black immigrants to be asked to pay a $25,000, $30,000 bond is nothing. Is common compared to the five and seven thousand dollar bond that other community have to pay. If you know bonding in immigration, you don't pay ten percent of it; you have to pay it all. So the conversation of uh, equity: How do you ask somebody who definitely walk eleven countries? Because when you come to Africa, most of them entry point is. South America, Brazil, for example, and then you walk from Brazil all the way to Tijuana to be arrested and put in jail and be slapped with a 30K bond. Why you were coming here to say, hey, there is war in my country or something else is happening and I need safety, right? And so with the bail bond, we are trying to address specifically incarceration, deportation, and the conditions of incarceration, of course, you know, black migrants spend three years in jail easily. So you will hold somebody in jail for three years. They spend more than the half of their time in solitary confinement, right? Mistreated and deported. So then you have to link that conversation with the prison pipeline, the issue of privacy, of private prisons, people making money. So you understand that the system is there because these people are being held in these detention centers, these jails for so many years for the only reason that the people who are paying the money, who have their money in the stock market for private prison can make money. Because really the plane that deported 47 um, Cameroonian last week in the middle of the pandemic could have have deported them a year ago, easily. So they didn't need to be in jail for a year. If it is only about saying, hey, you didn't do it properly, you came in here, you crossed the border, you came to the port of entry in Tijuana, that's not a way of coming in here. You could have deported them the week after that. They didn't need to stay in jail and be mistreated and be traumatized, right? So those are the one of the biggest drivers of some of the social justice work that I do. Um, locally here, I work in the school system also at DPS. And uh, DPS also I address the, um, the welcoming and service that we offer to bilingual and immigrant communities. So how do we make sure that they get the education they were supposed to get in a public school setting if they don't speak English? What does it look like? And Often, you know, I'm 
still in the same centers of talking with immigrant communities and uh, teaching systems or showing systems how to better create spaces for those that doesn't speak the language to belong. You know, how do we make it better? So how do we create this society that we all dream of where, you know, you don't have to be given a different type of education because your parents speak a different language. That should not happen. But that's nothing new. The country as a whole have always been uh, embroiled in equity in education. So we just, you know, picking up the torch that so many um, people before us, Blacks and uh, Latino, have fought to push public education to do better. So this conversation is an old one. I'm just a newest fighter in the arena and, uh, you know, continue to push for the ideals uh, that was set before and after Brown versus the Board of Education to be reality, right? We're still, we're still talking about the remnants of what does it look like and why haven't we achieved the promises, you know, of Brown versus the Board of Education. And that conversation also exists in immigrant communities and uh, we're part of that conversation. And that's why it's important to have communities like mine understand the history of the country and understand that, you know, we are also leaving the legacy of, you know, the great fight, the great conversation that happened prior that was led by different folks, but that affects us today. And uh, that's we are part of the frame of the American society today, and we must be part of that conversation. And uh, that type of engagement have led to uh, my newest appointment in the Black Leadership Advisory Council, and hoping that we are going to be able to set a real frame that supports the work that Michiganders have been doing for years, right? in the idea of equity, especially for black and brown communities. Thank you so much. So I'm gonna show you something. Uh, do you remember this, Sadie? Oh my God, yes! <laughs> this beautiful uh, pocketbook here. This is how we met. This little cute little pocketbook, this is how we met. How beautiful is this thing? Um, Wow, you still have it. You're one of the most uh, you're one of the most fashionable people I know. And um, at Charles H. Wright Museum, I can't even remember the year now, but maybe almost a decade. Yes. You were with my cousin. Shouts out to Lauren uh, Carter. <laughs> and um, you, you, you always look amazing. You always dress amazing. So regal, so gorgeous. You always have beautiful handmade clothing, you know, um, from Senegal, from yeah. your amazing tailors that, you know, there. shouts out to them. And I remember she introduced me. She's like, uh, cousin, you got to meet Sadie. Do you know Sadie? And I'm like, no. And I remember like seven, eight people were around us and their head flipped. Like, you don't know Sadie. I was like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> and you were so just loving and gracious and radiant. And you came to me and, you know, I'm short, you're tall and you're like towering over me and you just has beautiful colors on, beautiful dress and everything. And you were like, oh, it's an honor to meet you. 
uh, Lauren's cousin. And I, I looked and I said, oh my God. And I saw this beautiful pocketbook in your hand. I, I just started going on and on how, how pretty it was and how lovely it was and how fun. And you said, you want it here? And you handed it to me. And I was like, no, 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 no. And you were like, no, 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 take it, take it, take it. And that <laughs> like stopped me in my tracks because I was so, it stunned me because culturally it's so like, what are you doing? You know? And you're just like, you took all your stuff out of the pocketbook and you handed it to me and you're like, it's yours. Take it. I was like, no, 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 no. Like I, I can't. And you were like, no, no, no. Don't take away my blessing. Don't, don't, don't yeah. take my blessing away. It's like, I, you know, and Lauren was like, take it Piper. Don't, don't, don't curse her blessing. I was like, uh, I just weird and i was like oh my god i felt like i was stealing your purse i was like am i i was like am i stealing your pocketbook like i just I, and you were like no you were like that's my blessing you're my blessing today and i was like uh okay Hell yeah. <laughs> and i and i remember i saw you on another occasion and i had this and i would try to give it back to you and you were like no 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 anyway i just i wanted to have that be the entry into um you growing up it, between you grew up between um Senegal and France right yeah yeah can can yeah. you um just ha have us understand you know lay it out yeah so i i was not born in Senegal okay right so my father was in um in school in army in the north of France and my mom which came. which uh do you know which city which yes yeah, Strasbourg okay Strasbourg so really right there at the border with Germany and before my before I was born actually during the second world war that region was actually annexed into Germany mm. and when uh when the French and the Alliés when they won the war back then they got that part back so Strasbourg is is you know you really have a real cultural influences with German right there so I was born in Strasbourg and when my father finished school, he came back home with me and my elder brother, my mom. So I grew up in Senegal. And when I graduated high school, I went back to France, um, age 18, 19, to college. And from there, I, I ended up in, the, um, in Detroit, from Paris. Yep. So when you were in Senegal, yeah. this is your teen years? Yeah. Okay. And you had been maybe your childhood adolescence mm -hmm. that's you spending this in france yeah my childhood because i we made it in senegal uh before i was four mm, okay yeah. but when you're in france are you in a senegalese community nope i was born an immigrant and i have been an immigrant since then <laughs> <laughs> I never belong. So I was born from two immigrant parents. I would have been what they call a first generation if I was still there. And when we moved, we came to Senegal and they're like, oh, you brought this little two bag with you. Okay. <laughs> so in your in your mind, are you French? Or are you I mean, are you Senegalese and French? Like, like how do you think of yourself as a child? I I really I think of myself as Senegalese because I always grew up in a Senegalese household. Mm -hmm. However, I know that growing up, whether wherever I have always been at any moment in my life, people in that community took the time to let me know that I was different. 
right? Growing up in Senegal, because I wasn't born in Senegal, people used to be like, oh, you know, you know Senegalese. Why? <laughs> right? Why? You know, at school, people, you know, when kids want to be mean to you, like, oh, you know, from here. Okay, why? Why? Because I was not born in Senegal. Whatever. Okay. Then I go to college in France and they're like, well, you can't be French. Well, I have a French passport, but no, you can't be. Why? Because you're too that. Oh. Oh, you, you, oh, you, 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 you not, you not French. Oh, because French, I'm not, you know, I don't have blue eyes and mm, mm-hmm. fair skin and all of that. Okay. So whatever. My passport says something different. Right. Right here. And, uh, <laughs> and here in the US, they're like, oh, you're in black. Why? That's funny. <laughs> because you're from the continent, right? So it's just like, for me, sometimes I laugh because I'm like, you know, I'm really the epitome of what an immigrant is because I have always been in some form of shape the other mm-hmm. because you don't fit what that society have accepted mm-hmm. or what they made the norm, right? So so it's an it's a ongoing conversation. And, you know, for me, it's like uh, a little wink-wink when I'm in the middle of a conversation about immigrants and stuff like that. And I'm like, yo, you never belong to nowhere, yeah. right? But here, all of that is part of the journey of who you are, you know? Maybe I was born when my parents was immigrant so that I better understand what that it means, you know? The plight of being an immigrant and having a system that says that you don't belong. Because everywhere I have been at different stages of my life, the system was like, mm. Is your community Muslim at all? My family is Muslim. Their friends are Muslim. And that's it. That's it. So it's like here with Howland, right? Uh, growing up in Detroit until I get connected to the bigger Muslim population, the first African-American families I met, was not Muslim. The one that took me in, Mama Credia, was not Muslim. However, Howland grew up Muslim, period. Because in the house, that's what it is. And for, for me, it was the same thing. We practice at home. You eat the food. You learn to eat pork at home. You learn to cook. You learn to pray at home. And when Howlands go to Grandma Credia, they had a, a mat for her. They had this little thing that would recall the prayer time. And they would tell her, get up and pray during Ramadan. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. Are you not fasting today? So my community, whether it was a Muslim community or not, actually helped enforce that so that it was not lost. It wasn't something that you're like, oh, my God, I have to remember. No, you're living it every day. For me, it's just as natural as it is. And, you know, I know that for some of my friends, they knew me here in the U.S. And for so many years, they did not think I was Muslim just because I teach and, you know, I was performing African dance. And they did not think that a Muslim person would do African dance or they don't see you in a full niqab or hijab like the way they see it, you know, Mm -hmm. and they don't associate your gele with your religion. Mm -hmm. And I have met folks and three years later i'm like oh i'm fasting and they're like why i'm like well it's ramadan and they're like oh you muslim been muslim (laughs) they did not know Mm -hmm. because i did not fit that biased lens they had of what a muslim is supposed to look like or what they're supposed to do especially with african dance it threw a lot of my friends uh out but yeah i you know at home i grew up 
either Senegalese, either Serer person, you know, speaking the language, you know. Yeah. So when you um, when you're growing up, because we've had this conversation before, your parents have like this, what they want you to do, this path that they want you to to be. What what does this look like? Be, not not now, but like when you're a child, what's this path for you that they want you to be? Well, uh, I was going to go to college. I was going to have a degree before I was 24, 25. And I was going to be married by the time I was 25. It was clear cut. My daddy's head, it was clear, you know? Yeah. Didn't happen that way. The work you do, it's really, it's really sensitive. It's really important. And many times it's heartbreaking. It's dangerous. And, you know, I've witnessed you early mornings, late night, all day, having to, uh, in addition to take care of your child, in addition to having to take care of your your duties for your, you know, a, a job that you're holding, take care of your, your home for yourself, support your, your fellow community members, support your, your, your sisters, right? I've seen you, you know, literally struggling to get yeah. donations, to get uh, people to share for the donations, to um, get up money for people's bail, to get the money, you know, for uh, someone to have some uh, plane ticket or to get from here to there or to have some food, some clothing, uh, some support, some support for their families, right? And so, you know, all of the aspects of the work that you do, they cost money and it's, and it's very expensive. You told us before some of these uh, $25,000 bail numbers, that's just for bail, right? Um, that's not all the other expenses. And so yeah. I want to have a serious conversation about the economic I want to say burden and challenge you have, I'm going to say yeah. tackled and, and many times surpassed and overcome, but, but still have to go through to make sure that folks are safe oh, yeah. and that their families are safe and um, at the expense of risking, right. Of risking their lives, your life, you know, everything. Yeah, no, definitely. I think a lot of organizers would feel me when I say that the idea of being that strong person making the work look easy sometimes is often romanticized for no reason because there is no nothing to romanticize of having to beg. Like when we receive a call and the person say, hey, I am in Louisiana jail. Uh, I have been here for nine months, right? Um, my friend or my cousin is in Boston. If I come out, they're going to let me stay. How old are you? I'm 19. How much is your bail? Well, I went in front of the judge and the judge said that I have to pay $22,000. Boy came from Mauritania. Black Mauritanian, he was running away from slavery. So born in slavery in Mauritania and ran away and uh, followed another group of kids who was going to trek. So along the line, they came to Senegal, then they went to another country and they went to Angola. And from Angola, they applied for a visa to go to, to uh, Brazil. So they work 
handiwork. They apply for the fee, they get the visa, they make it to Brazil. Here you are in Brazil, you don't know nobody. Then you meet another group of people who are telling you because you're dark, it's not safe, so you can only live in the favelas. Some some part of Brazil are not safe for you. So your first inclinement is going to be to stay with a group. And that's how this child stayed with this group that was going further up, further up to the point where he made it to Tijuana. And we got the call because there was a, a lawyer in Tijuana who happened on that day who have spotted this child uh, on this specific day where the, the, the border patrol was very mean and he spot this child and he speak briefly with him. And because this child just spent this last six months walking up here, he speak enough Spanish to explain himself. right? So the lawyer is like, no, I like this boy. I really need to help him. He is young. He's an unaccompanied minor. I really have to help. And the lawyer is going back and forth, paying from his own money anytime he goes to Tijuana to see if this child is okay, to make him stay in this bridge, explain to this child, if you get off the bridge, you are losing the possibility of being able to apply for asylum. But this is a bridge, though. Everybody is on the bridge, uh, and every other day, the Border Patrol ICE is trying to push them off the bridge. And off the bridge in the first Ciudad that you have is all these people who are trying to take advantage of them. Then he gets this number that gets him on the other side of the border and he is in jail. He spends three months in the Tijuana border on the American side, then is shipped to Louisiana. Then the lawyer is looking and they call us, they tell us the story and we call the child. And my heart stopped. Like I'm calling Gerlin and Gerlin is like my friend from, um, the Haitian Bridge Alliance, like, we got to get this baby out of here. And the more you speak with him, he's from Mauritania, he speaks a little bit of Wolof. The more I speak with him, the more his story, what he have lived, how he rushed away, how he almost lost his life, how he was mistreated, how he was being tied and being, you know, worked into servitude to death. I know he can't go back to that. But I have to raise $22,000. Who am I going to call? I called you. <laughs> I think I did, right? So the first thing is what you do. is like, you're like, oh my God, let me make this post. So you make a post and you try not to give too much details to not give away who he is, but enough details for the community to have this, huh? you know, you, you want to create that compelling moment. That's the hardest thing to do as an organizer to create a compelling moment that's going to make people feel like they want to make it right. But then fundraising, we know you fundraise first in your community. Who is my community? My community is Black Detroit. They struggle. We don't make ends meet. We grind. So this is the community that I go to first because of how fundraising works. Your cousin, your friend, they give you money. You put it here, somebody else that believes in what you're doing somebody else that can say i can vouch for sadie i know she is not gonna buy you know some eyelashes because she don't wear eyelashes because <laughs> sometimes you're like oh i'm giving her my money i don't like her purse right but you know say you don't wear eyelashes you don't wear that kind of makeup so you might feel like oh okay she's not the kind of person that i'm gonna give the money but after that who do i have the immigrant community that is undocumented 
that don't have no salary, they don't know what a paycheck look like. They are self-made, self-employed. They grind. They hustle. They hustle as much as everybody else who doesn't make and meet in this city hustle. So you know those are not the points where the money comes from. So fundraising is hard. It's hard when you sit and you see other organizations who say that they do the same and they get dished. Like you see money flying in some organization like, wow, they just got 300k donation from whatever foundation they just got a 400k donation from whatever you know other sources and the only difference is that they have a more polished website they have some um, they have hired a marketing director who knows how to write they have a specific writer they have a graphic designer when their graphics comes out on Instagram, it pops in right and you don't have that but what do you do? Because the life of my child is as valuable as the life of any other child. We still have to make the money. So we grind, we call. I shamelessly call my people over and over again. I shamelessly post, I shamelessly call folks. I shamelessly call other bail bond, you know, and be like, hey, do you guys, can you guys pay this bond for this person? Shamelessly, you know, it's like, it's exhausting. We can make easily, like phone calls a day before I get an okay that I can raise $2,000. But if I can get that $2,000, I can get another $2,000. One day I was lucky, I called this girl that I never met over there in Boston. Actually, I was talking to a Muslim sister, Hazel. And she's like, oh, let us ask the Believer's Bailout. Because I heard that the Believer's Bailout, they they sometimes help Muslim. Like, ooh, okay, he's Muslim. Call the believers bailout and this woman picks up and she called me two days later, she sent me a link and I apply through them. And she called me back within 72 hours and she said, is, is, is the brother black? I said, yes, he's Muslim. He said, he said I think, you know, this, 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 this donor donate only to black Muslim in jail. Even though this is immigration, we think we might be able to get that. I could not believe that conversation. So Mrs. Elizabeth Nguyen called me 48 hours after that, and she said, baby, I have $15,000 for you. I dropped out of my chair. And it's people like that. It's a network like that. It's like small. It's like a familiar, like a home. It's the small connection of these people that we can go back to because they believe the same way you believe. They value the fact that they don't understand why people should be in cages. And if you are able to connect with them, then the work, you have hope that the work can be done. Gerlene, my partner in California is amazing. Gerlene can tell a story in a minute. She's my baby friend. I'd be like, when I have a hard case, I call Gerlene, like, Gerlene, are you going to ask? Are you going to ask? <laughs> I'll do the hard work, but you ask. So then, you know, we always go back and forth and see who in their network think they can, they can, they can raise it. And, you know, some of my priests, they be like, hey, we don't believe in this. We have a little bit of money. We can raise money in our congregation. You know, come speak in our congregation and we'll try to raise you this much. 
So we, you know, we chip away little by little. We chip away little by little. It's a lot. And sometimes it's very frustrating when you apply for a real grant and you have a foundation asking you to show your capacity. And you're like, dude, if you had gave me the money, I have capacity. But that same foundation cannot do the work because the same foundation don't have the connection in the community. Because the community is not going to call this foundation. They're going to call Sadie. They're going to call Girlin. They're going to call Wack. Oh, let's dig into that a little bit because that for me is the reason that I actually want to do the podcast with all the women. For me, that's the through line of the podcast. This, under this, this understanding that people share that Black women do the work, Black women figure out how to feed an army, a village with one seed. Black women are looked to to be the solutionaries. Black women are looked to to be the ones to have to figure it out without having what they need, right? And so for me, my interest in even doing this podcast is to dispel, to break that curse and to draw out how we can help everyone because this isn't isolated to people who are not no. black. Everyone looks to black women to have to figure things out and do without and 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 come up with come up with with what? So that's where the strength is is that when you have made sure that people don't have access, that they made a meal out of scrap, out of necessity. And they have perfected the art of making full meals out of scrap because you were trying to starve them to death. They were not going to die. So that's where that ingenuity and that creativity is. That's where it comes from. Like, like, like you know, a move. There is, not, there is not a no. There is not a we can do it. We are always going to figure out a way because unfortunately for so many years, for so many centuries, we were set in spaces where we were denied the access and we had to live and create a full life. We created a full life full of joy, full of laughter, full of love, life. We created life out of the, the scrap because we were being redlined, stopped, discriminated, killed. And people created system to lock us out of having access. And despite all of that, we're still here, shining brightly, shining brightly. So when you end up doing organizing work and stuff like that, that characteristic of yours is still there. So yeah, I am not gonna boohoo and cry because you're not gonna give me operational money. I will make sure that this child is out of jail. I will make sure that this family during COVID that did not get 1,200 because they were undocumented immigrants and the governor say all hair braiders and salon go home and they could not get you know, unemployment. They had to feed their children. So we raised the money to make sure they feed their children. We raised the money to make sure that one more friend is paid, that they won't go underbelly and lose it all. However, 
for those black women doing that all the time, it comes a moment where you have to request that there is a value and there is some investment coming back to the work that we do. And even though we know that we can do with less, we have to ask for our full share. Because for sure, if we get our full share, we are going to go above the expectation of what that full share was supposed to cover anyway. Because we have been doing with less than a full share and providing as if we had got the full share. But we just have to now be in the, in the habit of requesting and demanding that full share to be given. But at the end of the day, like you said earlier, we are the one in the trenches. At the end of the day, when you're going to talk about water issue in Detroit, you're going to go to Mount Monica Lewis Patrick. At the end of the day, when you're going to talk about the new vision of incarcerating women and fighting for pregnant women not to be treated as animal, you are going to go to Siwatu Salamatara. At the end of the day, that's where you are going to go because that's the story that strikes a chord. That strikes a chord where people from one space to another of the United States was like, oh, no. That's the story that strikes a chord where abolitionists everywhere around the United States was like, we can't have this happen no more. Because she stand there and her community stand there and said, we are not going to watch this happen. And if you guys are going to make this, we're going to make a thing out of it. Because this is not how you treat a woman. This is not how you treat a human being. This is not how you treat a pregnant woman who is about to give birth. And just for context, um, Sawatu Salamara, uh, much respect and shout out, is a member of uh, Detroit community, an environmental justice activist, and an and, and now an abolitionist during the time that she was pregnant was jailed because she brandished a legal firearm to protect her family, her child, and was sent to jail, even though <laughs> she had the, uh, the permit and it was legal. And um, during the time that she was uh, incarcerated, was shackled to her bed and forced to give birth, um, completely shackled to her bed in prison. And so um, she has beat her case, fortunately. Please check her out. It's a really important case. And now she is fighting for other women, other pregnant women and other women and other people that are incarcerated um, so that they can be free. And it's a really remarkable story and uh, we're just really happy that she is free. Really tragic that she had to go through that. Just terrible, traumatizing experience. And you talked about this young person who had endured slavery, modern day slavery. You know, here in the United States, um, we are taught <laughs> that slavery happened like so long ago, right? And, 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 and obviously that was a particular type that was a particular moment in history, right? Trans Transatlantic slave trade. But can you talk about the current multiple, you know, uh, systems of slavery that exist here in the United States, as well as abroad that 
people are caught up in that are ignored and that are funded and supported by the systems that we, the collective we partake in. Because at the end of the day, many of these uh, corporations and things are tied to these, these systems. And so I wanted to see if you could um, just speak on that. I mean, like I take, I took the example of Mauritania, which is Kujakut. Mauritania, some people are still born in what, in a more fancy word, you would say is indentured service, but the conditions of it are the condition of slavery because you never get to be free. And in Mauritania, it is known, like they call them the Haratani, they use the word Haratani for the Black Mauritanian, which, which translate into slave. And the Mauritanian in Ohio, you have a huge, huge, huge community of Black Mauritanian who have years and years, 60 years, 70 years of uh, community knowledge and stories where their life have been affected by the system of slavery in Mauritania where it pushed them out of their space of living. And that's why they run away. That's why they they are all over the world, right? Because who would want to continue living in slavery? Then you have the case that made it to CNN for a brief moment in Libya, right? With the stories of these Black young Africans who are economically displaced and who are trying to get to Europe by crossing the Mediterranean for a greener pasture, right? And who often, because they try to go through Libya as one of the port of entry, end up being sold into slavery in the desert of Libya, being caged, and same thing. When they make it there, they lose all their freedom. They're being sold for $400 to these rich other dudes that are lighter in skins, who um, come from the traditions uh, of that slave, Arabic slave trade, who do believe that, you know, anything darker than what you would call here a paper bag, you know, is not good for nothing else but hard work, uh, mistreatment, beatings, and devaluation of their humanity. And they treat them as such. It has not stopped because the CNN story stopped, died down, it still exists because these young kids are still crossing the desert, are still trying to cross the Mediterranean, are still being displaced economically from their home. And they are not gonna stop taking the road to the Eldorado, the European Eldorado, the Western countries Eldorado, where there is money, where the dollar worth $1 worth 500 CFA of my money any given day. But the iPhone 12 have the same cost. And the child is in Brooklyn and the child that is in Dakar, you know, are still dreaming of the iPhone 12, the same iPhone 12 with the same e-pods, you know, with the Lakers t-shirt. Because that's what they do. That's their teenager, that's their time. This is where they are. And they have the same dream. But that dream will cost this child a certain amount. And you would have to take that, whatever the cost is here, multiply it by 500, 
that same item going to cost 500 more for the same child who listened to Jay-Z and, you know, watch the housewife of Beverly Hills and watch MTV. And this is where we are. And, um, you know, here in the U.S., all what you have to do is look at the conditions with the incarceration of Black men to understand that, you know, those conditions mirror easily and awfully the slavery conditions. People are still being shackled. People are working for less than a dollar a day. It's no different than being in the field sun up to sundown. No different. And all of that, because somebody ignorant years ago encountered somebody else that looked like me and decided that we could not be human beings. So therefore, we don't feel the same. We don't encounter pain the same. You see that conversation on how Black women are mistreated and misdiagnosed today, where you will be at the hospital and you would ask for some relief and nobody would believe you because why would they believe you? You could not be in pain. You know, you can't be in pain. A black woman cannot be in pain. A black woman cannot be scared. A black woman can only be black and angry. And that's how systems treat you. That's how people who are into the system and don't have a keen understanding of what's going on also believe that same way. Because most of the time, those micro and microaggressions are done to the hands of regular folks that we meet. A nurse, a doctor, a cashier, prison guard. But the dehumanization of who we are as human beings, are melanated human beings, have started centuries ago. And uh, this is one of the inventions that have outlasted so many more. Like a lot of things have was in fashion and fell out of fashion. But the dehumanization of black bodies have not fell out of fashion in all systems and across, across the world, across the world. But we are at a time of reckoning. I think Detroit would breathe, Black Lives Matter in any other spaces, even in Nigeria today, in Cote d'Ivoire. We, we as a global world are reckoning with the idea that we are going to have to definitely shift and change or we're all going to sink together. I'm hoping that we get it together very quick because I'm not trying to sink with nobody. But I do sense and feel that at this point, a shift is going to happen a way or another. Yeah. So speaking of shift, because we're going to shift. Thank you so much. This, is, this conversation has been so rich. Thank you. I want to shift to bring us, you know, to, to a close. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, I want to shift into something really tangible. And, you know, you have your bail fund, you know, you have your fundraiser that you're constantly doing and you have your, you know, your various aspects of your organization that need the support. So 
help us understand in this last segment what those um, pieces of work are that need to get, you know, move forward. And what is the, what does the support look like? And you can be as specific as you need to be as yeah. to like, you know, even if it's dollar amounts so that folks that are listening who, who have the ability to have some access and to make a transformation uh, from their pocketbook uh, to your bank account <laughs> uh, can do so. So let's, let's do some uh, money manifestation right now. No, definitely. So money is always accepted because paying bail isn't easy and uh, we always need money to pay bail. So any dollar amount, sustainable donation, people who want to become sustainable donors or who know that their friends want to become sustainable donors are very welcome. When we pay bail um, in, the, in, the, in California, in the West, usually we had what they call uh, the welcoming stranger network. So we used to have friends who would open their home and uh, you pay the bail for this gentleman or this gentlewoman and they have them for a couple of days before we buy the ticket, right? Now with COVID, they can't do that no more. So anybody who can sponsor any hotel room, any hotel room, California, San Francisco, Denver, Texas, Louisiana, any, because those are where the detention centers are, then we are more than, you know, happy if you can do that. If you have, if you have miles to redeem and you want to give your miles for us, then give us to us, then I don't have to pay that $400 ticket to fly this person from Louisiana to New York or to wherever their family is, to Ohio, to Michigan, because most of the time they are caught at the border, but then they are coming, you know, in various states where they have families, friends, you know, encounters. So anybody who want to donate miles, you're welcome. We are, we'll take them and we'll use them. I promise I'm not going to Puerto Rico on vacation with me. <laughs> right? I'm not going to Puerto Rico with your miles. No. Because um, that is like, you know, sometimes you cannot donate money, but that would help. Like, definitely. If you know anybody, if you know somebody who have a home, who have a whatever. Talking about homes. Here in Detroit, we have picked up a couple of migrants who was living in the street. They were 21, 19, 17, and 2. They were living in a U-Haul last summer. So in Detroit, I know we have a lot of vacant home, a lot of homes that are in several levels of disrepair or that can be repaired. If anybody is willing to donate a building, because we are definitely looking at creating a halfway home for those migrants that end up with having nobody to stay with, that they can have a place to stay. Because sometimes we have a bail, we have the money, we can pay the bail, but we don't have a sponsor. Because nobody is willing to take them home with COVID, once again, it's harder. Before you would turn some people's arms for a week and they will shelter somebody for a week until you find a solution or you find them the next place to be. Now we don't have it. So we have actually lost cases that was easy because we didn't have a sponsor and we didn't have no place for them to stay. So I'm putting it out there. Any graphic designer who want to make cute graphics that don't are made by Canva by me. 
<laughs> Shouts out to Canva. Listen. Don't be mad at me, y'all. I'm not a graphic designer. So if you look at my graphics, don't be like, oh my God. So anybody who uh, have those skills, graphic skills, social media skills, we are always open, right? I'm always looking for administrative fellows and um, social media fellows, you know, students who want to work, spend their time, learn a lot, definitely, and uh, still contribute to the betterment of society. How we welcome strangers, they can definitely um, give us a call because we are always looking for extra hands to help. And, you know, post our conversation, repost our, you know, our social media and um, call, call your senators, call your people and tell them to vote for driver license in Michigan for all. This is lame duck and we are pushing hard. Actually, we're looking for volunteers to make calls because in Michigan in 2008, we took out driver license for undocumented immigrants. And uh, more than 79% of people being arrested in Michigan and ending up in deportation are being arrested because they are driving without license. But they can't go to the store. They can't take their children to school. They can't do nothing in Michigan without a car. And if we don't allow them as prior to 2008 to be able to drive because they are residents of our states and uh, they pay their taxes and they will pay their insurance, Believe me. Um, yeah. Call your state rep, call your senators and ask them to support the drive safe bills. And uh, so we can restore driver license for all in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And then um, in general, uh, you've got your website, you have your social media and then your phone number <laughs> and your email. Can you give us that? So our email would be the African Affairs at gmail.com. Our phone number 947-517-7451. So call us if you have teenagers who don't know what to do, then they can call us and we have little things for them to do. They can make calls. They can beg for money for us. They can write some letters and say thank you to our 400 plus donors who allowed us to raise 335K between June 10th and now for the Black Immigrant Bail Fund. Hey, yes. that's what's up. Yes, so today we were looking at the list and it was 400 plus donors that actually wow. achieved that. So, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And then your website? And um, it's the African Affairs, right? African Bureau.org. And on, on Facebook, you can find us at ABISA, Abisa. And we're there. And if you want to mentor children, Black girls, Call us. We have Springboard to Excellence. We're always looking for fabulous, awesome Black women, all size, all shape, all walks of life. You know, to come inspire our young girl, you know, to walk into their greatness. So all the time. Wow, this is great, Sadie. Um, we kind of went all over the place, but uh, we, we, still, we still didn't even like cover like a little bit, but you know, we just wanted to give folks an understanding of just your struggle, your challenges, your triumphs, um, your successes, you know, your life, your history, and you know, and give folks an opportunity to participate in this in your future success. 
definitely, even though we were all over the place, this is what I say that we don't live single issue lives, right? So mm-hmm. I think this was perfect. Yay, thank you. So this has been uh, Black Women Lead. Again, my name is Piper Carter. And, you know, shouts out to Kwaku Osei, who had this great idea and just extended it to the rest of us. And so I really appreciate this time that we have. I'm looking forward to the rest of these amazing conversations and these installments. And remember, support Black women, listen to Black women, and follow the lead of Black women, because Black women lead. Peace. Learn more about outstanding Black women leaders and how you can support their work at blackwomenleadus.com.